Well, thank you for that kind introduction, Pastor Steve. It, it, it has been nine years. I, I can't believe it. When I almost expected, come March or April, I get an email from Pastor Steve asking if I can drop by over the summer. And uh, I don't know that many churches where the pastor has asked me to come back for nine years straight. I'm not sure what that means for you. Uh, certainly a concern, I'm sure, in some ways. But delighted to be joining you in worship this morning. Um, the bond of ministry partnership is a strong one. Whenever you meet someone who is a pastor and minister, um, there, there's a great joy that you have in this sense of camaraderie, especially with the pastors that are here, Pastor Steve and John and Sam, who's again not here when I'm here. It seems like he times it. Um, the, the, the joy that I have in spending time with them, albeit brief, is a great one. So delighted to be praying for Crossway as we serve the Lord together with a small institution down in San Diego. I ask for your prayers as well for Westminster Seminary, California, when, whenever you remember. As we turn to the Lord in Psalm 136, let's ask for his blessing and his leading this morning. Father, we come before you giving you thanks for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We recognize that, Lord, that we are weak in many ways, both in our mind and in our hearts, as well as our body. But, Lord, by your spirit, you strengthen us and lead us. May this time be a time of great encouragement to us, not because of your servant standing here, but because of your power at work among us. Open our ears, O Lord, that we may hear your voice. Open our hearts that we may receive your word and apply them. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we may see your glory among us. For we pray these things in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We're going to be thinking about the whole chapter together, but we want to reflect upon it this way. When we recognize the history that is displayed before us. When you're younger, and we have teenagers in our home, when you're younger, you think in months or perhaps years. When you have a small child who's about to be four, her insistence that she be told that she's a four-year-old and not a three-year-old is something that you and I have seen often. When you become a teenager, you think in years, years seemingly far and far apart, but when you're able to say things like, many, many years ago, I did such and such thing, and you hear that, and you recognize that's actually two or three years ago. It doesn't seem far, but percentage-wise, for them, it was a long when you get to be my age and Pastor Steve's age, and many of us who are in that state of life, you think in decades. How many of us have said, in our 20s, in our 30s, now how dare we say, in our 40s, we did such and such things. We often hear that among us because we come to recognize time is moving faster, and we see in blocks that are far greater than just months or years. Aging for many of us provides us with perspective, and lovers of history value the lessons learned and wisdom gained over time, over years and decades. But if much wisdom can be gained by thinking about years and decades, just imagine what the psalmist is able to do with centuries and millennia. He's no longer thinking in decades. He's thinking in centuries and millennia as we look at the whole of human history. And one thing that we want to be able to gain and glean from Psalm 136 is one truth about God, which is this. The good God is faithful and worthy of our thanks. Our good God is faithful and worthy of our thanks. The psalmist sets out his main point in verse 1 when he begins by saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Perhaps you remember the story of the rich young ruler who comes before Jesus and asks a question. Whenever Jesus is asked a question, he actually never answers them directly. More often than not, he actually asks a question in return, redirecting their attention away from what they're actually wanting to know to the very thing that they ought to know and must pay attention to. So when he approached and asked the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus did not answer the question, but actually asked the question when he says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone, Jesus said. Well, here in this text, in Psalm 136, we get to see why God is good. The psalmist explains the goodness of God by a brief overview of history, in this case, all of human history. We struggle with modern arrogance, brothers and sisters, thinking that everything that mattered in life happened last year or in my lifetime or in the last century. But the psalmist is thinking big. He's going back to the beginnings of time and time of God's creation of heavens and the earth. He talks about creation when he said, God made the heavens in verse 5, the earth in verse 6, the great lights in verse 7, the sun in verse 8, and the moon and the stars in verse 9. He recounts the Lord's salvation in Exodus. Not only does he talk about creation, he talks about the recreation. That is the redemption and salvation of our God. When God struck down the firstborn of Egypt in verse 10, brought Israel out in verse 11, divided the Red Sea in 2 in verse 12, made Israel pass through the midst of it, verse 13, and overthrew Pharaoh and his host, we're told. He remembers the great kings that were in standing in opposition against God's people. The mighty kings, verse 18, the king of the Amorites, verse 19, and the king of Bashan in verse 20, who were no match for the God of gods, in verse 2, and the Lord of lords, in verse 3. He took their lands and gave them to Israel. And when we see this history and recount it quickly over a long history of time, what do we learn in the history of human redemption? You learn this one fact that the psalmist repeats over and over again. His steadfast love endures forever and that God is good. This is not because life has been easy. You hear about the bondage in Egypt in this text. You hear about the enemies that stood against God's people. We don't have to think far, you and I, to recognize the last few years were difficult. The global pandemic, war in Ukraine, Buffalo and Uvalde shooting all point to difficulties of life. Perhaps if we were to think a little lower, even the difficulty of setting this up on the side. I saw the gentleman who put it together. Of course, what happens is it's the last verse when the screen comes on. Exasperated, he did a spin as he walked away. Sorry, I didn't mean to point attention to the gentleman who was working so hard, probably sweating a lot to get it done. Having been in church plant situations, I know exactly how that feels. Perhaps big things, small things, grand scale, small scale, we recognize that life is not easy for you and for me and for all of us. What's striking for the psalmist is that he's not assuming that life has been easy for everyone. In fact, the way he describes the truthfulness and the honesty of difficulties of life is by placing Psalm 136 right next to 137. This is not just to show you I can count well, but in 137 you see an interesting psalm, one of the most sad 
and difficult psalms. There is a scholarly debate taking place as to how the books of psalms were placed together. Some people believe that they're anthologies without connection. Others believe that they're connected together for a reason, meaning in order for you to understand 136, you actually need to understand 137. Because in 137, you see the recounting of God's people as prisoners of war, as people conquered, being driven away from their home by their captors and tormentors. As they're being dragged away, they're tired, they're sitting by the riverside next to a tree, and their captors mockingly demand that they sing a song. They say, sing a song of your homeland. Sing a song to your Lord. Sing a song of Zion, a happy song. In this captured state, this is not the mood that they were in. Singing a happy song is not what they had in mind. And so here, the psalmist recounts and records for us what the people of God who were despondent in difficult circumstances asked when they said, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How do we sing the Lord's happy song when circumstances all around us are so difficult? How do we sing praises to the Lord on this side of glory when glory cannot be seen and he seems so distant from us? I wonder if you can echo that question at different points in your life and perhaps even now as you come and approach the Lord this morning. Here, it's a question that we often lift up. How do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? What's amazing is that what surrounds this sorrow and seeming hopelessness are the words of Psalm 136 that you and I read together and the next chapter over in 138. In chapter 138, we see the repeat of what was told to us in 136 where the psalmist says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. 136 and 138 cover the hopelessness of 137. That is to say, our sorrow is enveloped by God's steadfast love. And the psalmist is visually showing us that he covers our sorrow and sadness, despite the fact that you and I may have a difficult time singing his song. Friends, God is good because his steadfast to us has no end. And that's the psalmist's point. Even if you forget everything else, the psalmist makes sure that you remember this fact over and over again. In fact, 26 times he repeats this. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. 26 times. It's an unending refrain. Do you know why the psalmist and the writers of Scripture repeat things? Well, parents here, I think, would understand why they do so because... Often children forget, and more often than not, they don't listen. You have to repeat over and over again for them to actually remember the very basic things they ought to remember. If you're children, no offense to you, but it's true. You guys choose not to listen, often choose to forget, and often act as if you're deaf, just at the most convenient times. And here, the scripture repeats for that reason. Just in case you didn't hear the first time, let me repeat it the second time. If you didn't hear it the second time, let me repeat it the third time. 26 times he says, God's 
steadfast love for you endures forever. Friends, God's steadfast love for you never quits. God's steadfast love for you has no end. His steadfast love, he says. It seems simple enough, those, those words, and perhaps you've heard the original behind that phrase that many pastors have repeated over and over again. The word is hesed, right? It means steadfast love as translated here, and the translation we're using is the English Standard Version. But there's a remarkable variety of translations of this particular word. Let me show you how. Some say his love, not just his steadfast love, his love, NIV, his loving kindness, NAS, his faithful love, NLT, his mercy, King James Version, and his, my favorite, loyal love, God's loyal love for his people. Translating is remarkably difficult. Translation involves transferring the meaning of the word, the implication of the phrase and sentence, and impact of the sentence to an audience who are unfamiliar with the history, context, and culture of the original speaker or author. This is particularly why those of you who are bilingual or perhaps even trilingual understand how it's difficult to find the perfect word to actually uh, comprehend and translate words into a different language altogether. Let me, let me try to explain how difficult this sometimes is by bringing up a silly example. Maybe you like Netflix. I do now, especially post-COVID. Uh, it's a bad habit I've picked up. And if you notice, for those of you who are Korean Americans in particular, there are lots of Korean American shows, especially about food. Um, you can't combine two topics that are more of an interest to me, Korea, food, and being able to put that into a documentary. You might have seen a series called the Rhapsody series of different Korean foods. I'm not, I'm not being paid by Netflix, so you don't have to go home and actually watch it. But there is, the, there is the Hanu, which is Korean meat Rhapsody. There is the Pork Belly Rhapsody, which is about pork belly you grill on t- tabletops. And then the Cold Noodle Rhapsody. Uh, for those of you who speak Korean, Nengmyeon is the word. If you've ever seen that episode, it tells you the history of the Korean noodles, which actually came down from the present-day region of North Korea. And so many of them came down because of the Korean War uh, some 50-plus years ago, 70-plus years ago. And what happened was there's this one scene where this owner of a noodle shop in the city of Busan was talking about his father who began the shop after the war when he came south. And on the wall was this big decorated map that was hand-drawn. And he explains what that is. He said, this is the map that my father drew for me and said, if ever the country reunifies, go to this place, then you can see where I grew up. Next to it was a blown up letter of his father where he is writing to his father, that is now the son's grandfather, where the father says, I am a bad son for I did not return to see you again before you died. And he goes on to say, but I am now about to die, and I will see you soon. And as the son is reading this, he's just tearing up, just talking about his family and family history in particular. And he says, it's because my father was filled with Han. There's no direct translation for that word. Many of you who are uh, perhaps familiar with the Korean language understand that that word is impossible 
to translate. And so I looked at the subtitle, and the subtitle simply says, simply, deep-seated anguish. He had lots of deep-seated anguish. I wonder if you agree with that translation. I, I don't think that gets at the full meaning of what Han stands for. It's a heart-burning, an ill-feeling. It does include feelings of anguish, but regret, an unsatisfied longing for something. It's melancholy that comes from both anger and desire that cannot be fulfilled. All rolled into a big, giant ball. There is no translation for this, because translation is that difficult to convey meaning and feeling about a word in one language to another. Part of the reason for explaining it is that the word love, translated steadfast love in our text, which means covenant or promised love or the favor God shows to those with whom he has entered into a promised relationship, it's hard to explain in one word or, for that matter, one image. It's enduring because God is God and his word could never change. But there is not one word in English that can do justice to the full meaning of that. It is about mercy bestowed upon people who deserve the opposite, who live in sin and in rebellion and hostility toward God. It's about God's grace poured out upon people who do not deserve the riches of his blessings, having lived for oneself and not worshiping the God of creation and redemption already described. It's about love given to people who did not love and who even after receiving love still do not love well still do not love well, often professing one thing with their mouths, but actions betraying those alleged convictions. Do you know what I mean by it? It's about mercy, grace, and love. It's about promised love fulfilled in God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and through his Son's name alone. Note with me, not the mechanism of salvation, but the motivation of God's salvation in these following words of Paul. Paul's grasping at words to explain the kind of display that God has shown to us in Christ Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, but God, being rich in mercy, not just merciful, he is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, not just any love, but the great love he has for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Do you know how uncomfortable that phrase is? I mean, if you have English majors here, this is not the most nice phraseology to put together the meaning. But he wants to say the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He wants us to understand this rich in mercy, the great love, the riches that are immeasurable in his grace and kindness, God, that he has showed us in Christ Jesus, his son. No words can do justice. No words can sufficiently explain what the riches of his grace and mercy and love 
look like for us in Christ Jesus. Only the cross in his death can fully express that. This is what Paul is trying to do. To say, this is the steadfast love he has for you. This is why Paul says later on in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not because we're holding on to him. But every single moment, he's holding on to you in Christ Jesus. His riches, his grace, his mercy, his blessings will never quit nor end because God is good. And his steadfast love for you endures forever. Friends, it may not seem like it all the time, right? It may seem like God cannot be seen. Where is he? Sometimes you can't hear him. It's like, I can't understand where he wants us to go. And why is he doing this in my and our lives, we might say to ourselves. May I give you one more silly analogy for us to consider? Because here, what the psalmist is saying is that his steadfast love for you, brothers and sisters, endures forever. But yet we don't feel like it. How do we, how do we bridge that dissonance or distance? Uh, Pastor John was kind enough to point out and awkwardly point at my family. Um, it's always awkward when you visit together, right? I do have a son who's now older, but we have a girl and a boy. Anna and Simeon are their names. Um, we have the names chosen before they were born. So if we had two boys, they would have been named Anna and Simeon. If we had two girls, they would have been Anna and Simeon as well. Girls and boys are very different. I don't mean to make absolute generalized statement. We have a newlywed here. Good luck when you have children uh, because everything is a new lesson for you to figure out along the way. And not one child is the same as the next. In our case, our daughter kind of could sit in one place and read and concentrate. The boy, when he was younger, when he started walking, not as much. The reason that became an issue was when I did not have kids, I was an expert in child rearing. I knew everything about child rearing. Uh, I read lots of books and... uh, And so, like, when my sister had kids or others had kids, I had lots of lessons to give. I was that generous in terms of sharing with them my wisdom from vast amount of experience that I've gained. But one thing I didn't like with young families, and maybe young families still do this now, is that they would put their kid in this backpack with a rope in the back. Have you seen those? And then what they do is the parents hold on to the rope and the kid is walking around. And this is just so that the boy or the girl can't get away and you keep them in line. The problem is it felt like they're treating kids like dogs. And so I always felt that that's wrong. You should never do that. You should never have backpack like that. Until I had my own children. And then my in-laws were kind enough to give us a gift of going on a cruise as a family. I don't know if you know this. When the boat is in the ocean, there are no edges. And people can fall off. I kept dreaming for days on end heading into it that my son is running to the end, he was two, and then he's falling off the edge. I mean, that, kept, that was the repeated dream over and over again. And so my wife and I did what we felt we must. We bought a backpack. <laughs> As we bought the backpack, we put it on him. He didn't know any better. It was cute. He could put cars in there, trains in there, and so on. And then it had about a three-meter, ten-feet uh, rope in the back. And so we're holding it as we're getting on the boat together. It was perfect. 
We were confident that he couldn't get away. But sometimes as he's walking away, he turns around and he looks and looks for his mom and dad. When he sees his mom, you can see him smile because he located us. But there are times when people are rushing through and when he turns around, he doesn't see mom and dad. And you can see his face change. Have you seen your kid's face change when they can't find you? And they start panicking and they start looking for you and they come nearby and they see you and they smile and they go back and forth. Sometimes they turn around, see mom and dad. Sometimes they turn around, they can't and they panic and they look. But there was never a time, not one moment, when that child was separated from his or her mom. Not once. We may not see, we may not perceive, we may not fully comprehend because our eyes are weak and we can't see through all the things in between. But the Lord has never been separated in Christ Jesus. This is the point that the psalmist wants us to understand. In the midst of the valleys of life and death, he says, remember this, 26 times in that unending refrain. Our good God's steadfast love for you never ends. Never. This is where he comes to then the response part. Knowing that God's steadfast love never ends nor quits, then there's only one response that is actually possible. And this is what we read earlier today as we began. Verses 1 through 3. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Why do we say he repeats things? Because we're forgetful, and he wants us to remember. Right? Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks does not fully express the meaning of this is called a great hallelujah because there's a repetition of praising the Lord, but praising the Lord cannot be done apart from giving thanks to him. And we recognize that's easier said than done. Our hearts are prone to wander and our eyes fixate on what is missing rather than what is present. But the psalmist says, give thanks full stop. It does not say give thanks in perfect circumstances. It does not say give thanks over abundant provisions. It doesn't say give thanks in light of secure future. It doesn't say give thanks when your children are doing great. No, he says simply give thanks. For friends, even non-Christians give thanks when they are healthy, loved, and successful, and secure. What makes our faith so unique in Christ Jesus is that the spiritual and hidden realities are made visible to you and I who call upon the name of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We give thanks not only when things are going well, visibly and tangibly, but we give thanks even when circumstances do not seem right because of the Lord's constant love for us, shown and demonstrated and promised to us in his son Christ Jesus our Lord. His love for you endures forever. The only qualifier is this. Give thanks to the Lord whose steadfast love for you endures forever. This is why the apostle repeats it, doesn't he? Ephesians 5.20, give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, 
Let your request be made known to God. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses that you know well. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Friends, I have no idea what burdens and joys, what pains, as well as uh, successes you bring before the Lord this morning. But one thing you do understand is that for those who are in Christ Jesus, the psalmist reminds us that his steadfast love for you endures forever. And knowing that fact, you and I who are in Christ Jesus ought to respond. Not because circumstances are great, not because everything visible is excellent, not because everything tangible and touchable are always going awesome, but simply because God has been good to us in Christ Jesus. And we turn to the Lord and give thanks. Perhaps I can leave you with the words from five centuries ago, just in perspective of history. A question asked of Heidelberg Catechism, where the question and answer asks, How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? Providence is a fancy way of saying theologically that God provided and superintended for his people throughout history. If you understand God's creation and providence, how does it help us? It answers by saying we can be patient in adversity. Why? Because God is there with us. Thankful in prosperity. Why? Because he's the one who did it, not you nor I. And for the future, we can have good confidence, not because of me or my ability, in our faithful God and Father, that no creature will separate us from his love. May Church Crossway, like perhaps the institution that I serve, we have a lot of wisdom that we need as we navigate not only now, but for the next few weeks and months and years to come, having come out of a period that many of us don't fully comprehend. But yet, we as church together, may we be patient in adversity and trust the Lord, thankful in prosperity, giving thanks to him for even sustaining us each and every single day, and put our good confidences in the good God, whose steadfast love for you endures forever. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we recognize that the way of the cross is not necessarily always seen or understood by the world. We lean upon Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who lived and died a criminal's death. And Lord, we trust in him always for not only our life, for future glory, but even present moments each and every single day. We come before you with burdens that are sometimes expressed, often unexpressed, deep in our hearts and our minds, that we desire that you know. So, Lord, we ask that you see the depths of our hearts and our minds. Lord, you answer the questions and prayers that we have. Remind us of your love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Grow in us growing faith and trust, O Lord, so that always, even if the world does not recognize and witness to the presence of our Lord and Savior, we may see and give thanks to the Lord for your steadfast love for us endures forever. Be with Crossway, O Lord that the cross of Jesus Christ may be lifted up on high at this church or this area.
that always, O oh Lord, through the proclamation of your word, by the faithful preaching of the pastors at this church, as well as the members who make up the body of Christ Jesus at this church, may they bring you glory and honor. May words and songs and prayers of thanksgiving be unceasing at Crossway, not only for your glory, but for our health and growth. For we pray these things in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.